I'm gonna show you how great I am. This was our final tower. I just wanna say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is part two in my series on J. Robert Oppenheimer. And in this episode, I'm going to review the movie Oppenheimer. I'm going to talk about what was accurate, what was not accurate, what I thought was true to character, what I maybe imagined a little bit differently than what was portrayed on the screen, and more generally, what I liked and what I didn't like. I'm also going to go through some of my endnotes. So these are just some of the thoughts, some of the things I had to cut out of the main narrative in the main episode. So just a, a couple things I jotted down. Uh, that you might find interesting. So with that, let's get into the episode. Let's hear about the movie. Let's hear about some of my end notes after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Linked Hacker. Look, finding your audience on social media has never been more challenging. There's more noise. I mean, the big thing is there've been all these changes to algorithms on different platforms. A million things have come together to make it hard to target the right people. That's why I've been so impressed with Linked Hacker. I've been working with them and they're great. LinkedIn is a great way to find your audience. It's super data rich. The targeting is really specific. And Linked Hacker is great at navigating LinkedIn and using their tricks of the trade to help you find exactly who you're looking for. I have just been really impressed with them. If you're considering new channels to reach your audience, consider Linked Hacker. I promise you won't be disappointed. And use the link linkedhacker.com slash Ben, which is in the show notes, for $100 off your next LinkedIn advertising campaign. Again, that is linkedhacker.com slash Ben. This episode is brought to you by Founders. Founders is the podcast to listen to if you're an entrepreneur, an aspiring entrepreneur, or anyone who considers themselves a leader or a founder of anything. It's a lot like this podcast, but David Senra, the, the host and a good friend of mine, is more focused on great entrepreneurs who have founded great companies. And it's amazing. If I had to recommend someplace to start, honestly, just start right now with where the podcast is at right now and work your way backwards. The most recent episode is really great. The one he released a couple weeks ago on the founder of Bugatti was really interesting to me. I love that. It's a story that you're not going to hear anywhere else. David is obsessed with finding some of these more obscure biographies, some of these stories of lesser known founders that literally no one knows about. I think this biography of Bugatti sold out because there were only a couple of copies available before David did this episode. So you're truly learning stuff that you won't find anywhere else. It's helped me a lot. It inspires me. I listen to it every week. So get it wherever you get your podcasts. Do yourself a favor. Listen to Founders. So I've actually watched the Oppenheimer movie twice now. And on the second time, I took really detailed notes of what I thought and how it compared to real life. So I'm just going to go through some of those notes. So to start off with, I really like the movie. Excellent music, good acting, incredible cinematography. I really enjoyed it. And if you haven't seen it yet, uh, I think you'll enjoy it too. I, I do recommend it. I will say the last third is is a little boring to me. It's it's tough when the climax is the first nuclear explosion ever. Like That is really exciting. And then the whole last third of the movie is a courtroom drama. And to me, it's just not that exciting by comparison. But with that said, I like the movie. So when I go through and note some of these historical inaccuracies in the movie, it's not necessarily a criticism. I mean, sometimes it is, but most of the time, I assume Christopher Nolan and his team knew the real history. They just needed to simplify things because it's a movie. And so, yeah, it was three hours long. There's a bunch of stuff that I wish they added. I wish they had been able to include. But what is he going to do? Make it a four hour movie? Of course not. So I'm just pointing out stuff. And I think people want to understand where they took liberties. But 
just understand this is not necessarily a critique of the movie just because I'm pointing out where it wasn't historically accurate. Okay, so with that said, let's start off. First thing I noted down is the poisoning of the apple. So they have this scene, Oppenheimer poisons the apple of his professor, the guy named Blackett. And this played out differently in real life. For one thing, in the movie, Niels Bohr, his hero, is about to take a bite of the apple and he steals it from his hand. In real life, Niels Bohr was not involved in any way. For another thing, Oppenheimer did get caught. I think he actually turned himself in, but that doesn't happen in the movie. In real life, he had to go see a psychiatrist in London because of it. And then thirdly, the fact that he did turn himself in, they knew he tried to poison Blackett and he still didn't get kicked out of the university, out of Cambridge. So that probably means he didn't poison to kill. So they have him putting in, I think it's potassium cyanide, which is, that will kill you. That is poison <laughs> that's supposed to kill. It seems like in real life is maybe a little bit more of a prank, something that he was hoping would just make Blackett sick. If you literally tried to kill your professor, I do not imagine they would allow you to continue to study under him and take classes. I do wish in that part they had also gone more into his downward spiral and to some of the other crazy stuff he did, the dropping of the luggage and trying to strangle someone with his luggage strap. But I understand, you know, time. Uh, one thing from early on in the movie that was correct that I didn't mention in the first episode is Oppenheimer's math was always poor. He was not good at math. He was super self-conscious about it. He's embarrassed by the fact that he didn't have a super deep understanding of the mathematics behind physics. And part of that was the fact that he didn't study physics as an undergraduate. He studied chemistry. And then he started coming in with advanced courses and he just accelerated so quickly that I don't think he ever got around to doing some of the fundamental studies in mathematics. I think he was embarrassed to at that point because he's already a hotshot. People consider him a big deal. He, he's just embarrassed to go to an introductory mathematics course. But I also think there's something else there, which is he didn't have necessarily a natural aptitude for mathematics, I don't think. And I'm this might be a little bit of a leap, but, but bear with me. There's a story that I didn't tell. Uh, early in his childhood, his mom forced him to take piano lessons. She was very cultured and she wanted him to learn to play the piano. But Robert Oppenheimer hated piano lessons. He hated playing the piano. And so there's a story that one time he gets really, really sick and is bedridden for weeks and he's in terrible, terrible pain. And so his mother comes and checks on him and says, you know, Robert, how are you, dear? Uh, how do you feel? And he says, like I do when I have to practice the piano. And so that was the final straw for her. She's like, okay, if you hate it that much, I guess I won't make you play anymore. So he stops playing the piano when he's seven or eight years old. And he never picked it up again. He never picked up an instrument. There's a story that when he was at Harvard, some of his friends in chemistry and physics would go to the opera and Oppenheimer would always leave early because he didn't like it. One of his colleagues said that Oppenheimer was the only physicist he knew who wasn't musical. And there is this connection between mathematical ability and musicality. People who are good at math are often good at music and vice versa. Obviously not always the case, but it does seem to be a correlation. Whether that's Einstein, who was a very good violin player, or Brian May, who's the lead guitarist for the band Queen. He studied mathematics and physics at the Imperial College of London before embarking on his music career. And those are just two examples, but they're all over the place. There is some relationship between math and music. And so it is interesting that Oppenheimer was not particularly gifted at music or math. So maybe it was an aptitude thing is the reason he, he never got into mathematics. On the topic of Einstein, who I just mentioned, Oppenheimer and Einstein were not that close. They did have more contact after the Manhattan Project, after World War II, when they were both at Princeton. 
But especially before that, they didn't talk that much. And the movie takes a lot of conversations that Oppenheimer had with other people and makes them between him and Einstein, which is understandable. Einstein is a big name. Everyone knows who he is. You probably have to limit the number of characters in the movie. So it makes sense that if you're going to pick one character to kind of put all these conversations into his mouth, that you would choose Einstein. The one conversation that is in the movie that they really did have is when he gets his security clearance revoked. This outraged Einstein, and he really did encourage him to turn his back on the U.S. He says, what are you still doing with these yahoos? Why are you supporting the United States government in any way, shape, or form after they did this to you? One other note from early on is when Oppenheimer is talking to Strauss. So Strauss, his name is spelled S-T-R-A-U-S-S, like Strauss, which is a very Jewish name. He pronounced it Strauss because he said that was how they pronounce it in the South, which is where he's from. And Oppenheimer responds to him, well, my name's Oppenheimer, and unlike you, I can't hide my Jewishness. Which I get what he's saying with the last names, right? Okay, Strauss sounds you know, Anglo-American, and Oppenheimer, there is no way to spin to, to sound Anglo, right? So yeah, you can say it's Southern pronunciation. Probably there was some element there of trying to fit in and, Stra- and Strauss trying to hide his ethnic identity. But what's interesting is that that line, you know, oh, I can't hide my Jewishness, but you can, is not really true to their characters at all. Oppenheimer is the one who hid his Jewishness very much. He was never very religiously Jewish. And outside of his upbringing at the Ethical Culture Society, he never made any effort to deliberately cultivate relationships with other Jews in the Jewish community. He did help Jews who were fleeing Europe when it came under Nazi occupation. So I'm not trying to say that he like turned his back on the Jewish community, that he disliked Jews or anything like that, but it just wasn't a major part of his life. And probably on some level, um, not openly, but tried to distance himself a little bit from his ethnic heritage. Whereas Strauss is someone who went to synagogue, was involved with his local Jewish congregation, was personally observant, you know, was, was Jewish. Uh, so it's interesting that they had that line in there when the reality of how they lived their lives was sort of the opposite. It was Oppenheimer who hid his Jewishness and not Strauss. On that note, the person who heckled him the most about his lack of you know, ethnic identity, about his lack of identification with the Jewish community was Isidore Rabi. Rabi was very Jewish in an ethnic sense, never tried to hide from his Jewishness, and in fact was very in touch with it. He was good friends with Oppenheimer, and he encouraged him to get in touch with his Jewish side, I guess you might say. And Rabi claimed that Oppenheimer, here's a quote, he said, he never got to be an integrated personality because he was Jewish, but he wished he weren't and tried to pretend he wasn't. And so Rabi gave him a hard time about this, kind of joked with him, but he sort of acted as Oppenheimer's conscience in many ways. And I think he's played very well in the movie by David Krumholtz. He really conveys the warmth that you feel when you read about Isidore Rabi. He, he was that kind of guy. And so I really like the way he was played, but that does bring me to another one of my criticisms of the film. It feels like almost everyone in the film is so dour all the time. The two exceptions to me are Isidore Rabi and Niels Bohr, who's played by Kenneth Branagh. They get to be warm, engaging personalities. Everyone else is just like dour, gray, sad all the time. It's like there's a wet blanket on the entire movie. It's especially incongruous to me with the women in his life, with his love interests. So his longtime girlfriend, Jean Tatlock, was a very spunky person. She was a partier. She was very mercurial. So she was up and down and she could be very, very depressed. But she wasn't most of the time somber and dour, which is how I think she comes across in the movie. She seems a very different person from 
what I thought reading about her. Similarly, his wife, Kitty, was a partier and they make her this very serious woman in the movie. I don't understand why they did that with either of them. Kitty, similarly, up and down. She rubbed some people the wrong way, but she was a huge personality who was good at making friends and could be the life of the party. So I did think uh, that was a little odd that they did that with so many people. I, I get it. The movie's trying to portray this foreboding sense of doom. So the whole thing has to have this sort of oh, plodding, angsty energy. But I don't know. I wish they could have varied it up a little bit more. Speaking of Dower, I do think they do pretty well in portraying Oppenheimer's arrogance. So especially early on, you get this feeling of why Strauss would not have liked Oppenheimer. There's a scene where he's walking around with him and he's offering him this amazing position at Princeton and showing him, look, you're going to have this amazing house, this amazing commute on these beautiful grounds. You'll have complete academic freedom. You'll work with these amazing people. And Oppenheimer goes, I'll consider it. And Strauss is like, yeah, this is a great offer I'm making you. And Robert says, yeah, that's why I'm considering it. And it comes across as very condescending. And I think in that moment, um, it's really well played by Robert Downey Jr. And you get this feeling of why Strauss would feel the way he did about Oppenheimer of like, dude, I'm trying. Like, I know I don't have the big PhD you have, but I'm helping you out here. I'm a self-made man. Maybe he's a little insecure to begin with. And he's making this great offer to Oppenheimer who just looks down his nose at him and is like, yeah, I'll consider it. One of the interesting things though, is that is very true to how Oppenheimer was. He could be extremely condescending to people, but everyone agrees that he just like turned it off during the Manhattan Project. Like he just put his arrogance totally in check when he needed to the most, which I find really interesting that he had that ability to turn it off and on. And then it kind of resurfaces after the Manhattan Project. And it's like, well, if you kind of figured out how to t- turn this element of your personality off, why wouldn't you just keep doing that? But I think maybe it took a lot of effort for him to be that kind of leader who was understanding and would get on people's level rather than just condescending to them. So it took a lot of effort. And then once he didn't have to anymore, he stopped doing that. But I thought they did a good job of portraying that. One thing I was shocked they didn't include was they have a very short scene with Heisenberg. Um, I thought they would include this competition that Oppenheimer and Heisenberg had for the same girl. They were both trying to ask out the same girl when they were studying at Gottingen. It feels so cinematic to me, right? Like if I were sketching out the movie, that's one of the first things that I would include is, oh, these guys who go after the same girl, Oppenheimer gets the girl. And now a few years later, they're racing each other to build the atom bomb. Heisenberg working for the Germans, Oppenheimer working for the Americans. I mean, I get why they cut it. You can only have so many love interests. You can only have so many rivals. They would have had to do much more about the Heisenberg storyline. But um, I think that's so interesting. It's like one of these synchronicities in life. Can you believe it? These guys who are trying to build the atom bomb at the same time, you know, were at the same university trying to date the same girl uh, years earlier. One other thing that I think is not correct about the movie, uh, I read and watched it a second time to make sure they really portray it. Uh, they take Oppenheimer's word for it when he says that he was just a fellow traveler and never a communist party member. I went over this in the first episode, but I think it is likely that he was in fact a secret communist party member based on the evidence. Of course, no one can know for sure. That is the nature of being a secret member of the communist party. It's a secret. You know, he paid communist party dues though. In the movie, they actually say, this is interesting to me. He says, yes, I donated through the communist party to the Spanish civil war through 1942. 
which is funny that they say it like that in the movie because that is what happened. But the Spanish Civil War ended in 1939. So why were you paying dues to the Communist Party for three years if this Civil War ended in 39? So that to me is, is the crux of, of why I think he was a, a member. Not that that would change the story all that much, but I do think that's one small inaccuracy. Speaking of Gene Tatlock, who I just mentioned, there are two more things I wanted to point out. There's a scene in the movie where he brings her flowers and she says, no more flowers, Robert, and throws them away in his face. And that really happened. Apparently a lot. Oppenheimer would bring her flowers and she would always say, Robert, stop bringing me flowers. She was a communist. She was a progressive feminist woman, forward thinking. And she hated that he would always bring her flowers. And he was like compulsive. He knew that she didn't want him to bring her flowers. And he continued to do it even after she complained repeatedly, even after she repeatedly threw them away in a trash can in his face. And I don't know why, but I think that's a great scene. And I think it reflects something about his personality. Like, I think that these great people are often very obsessive. And so they do these quirky things because they are obsessive. So Oppenheimer liked to be thoughtful and he liked to engage people and and being thoughtful was a way for him to do that. And so he just compulsively would do it. He knew Gene didn't want him to do it and he kept doing it. I, I can't fully explain it. I just think it reveals something about the obsessive and compulsive nature of his personality. Like these people are addicts and they do things even when it doesn't make sense to for that reason. And it's part of what makes them great. The other thing about Gene Tatlock that I thought they got wrong is they insinuate that maybe she was murdered. Like maybe she was killed by the FBI. That's not true. She was not murdered. She committed suicide. There's no good evidence that she was killed by the FBI. In the book, American Prometheus, the authors try to insinuate some doubt. But when you look at the facts, even the facts that just they lay out, it's very clear. She was not murdered. She committed suicide. So here's the evidence that they present that maybe she committed suicide. Uh, The first is that she didn't sign her suicide note. I don't think that's very strong because it was in her handwriting. And then it just trails off towards the end of it, presumably because she had taken the drugs that she was trying to overdose on and they had started to have an effect. And so it trailed off and she just didn't sign it. The other evidence that they give is that there were trace amounts of a sedative in her blood that you could use to knock someone out like a chloroform type thing. So that's the other evidence they point to, but it was only trace amounts. It wouldn't have been enough to knock her out anyway. And she did a lot of drugs recreationally. And she was doing drugs to kill herself. So there was a lot of stuff in her system. And again, this isn't the amount that you would expect if someone was trying to knock her out in order to kill her. I guess the other thing that I guess you could present as evidence is it is a very weird way to kill yourself, to drown yourself in a bathtub, which I agree. I don't think she did that intentionally. I think what happened was she was trying to overdose and she was trying to do so in the bath. So she takes the pills, she fills up the bath, because I guess that's a pretty pleasant way to go. Want to die peacefully in a warm bath. So she takes the pills. She starts filling up the bath. She goes to write out her suicide note. And then the drugs start kicking in sooner than she expected. So her note trails off and she stumbles over to try and get in the bath. And she falls face first and she drowns unintentionally. So anyway, I don't think there's any good evidence that Gene Tatlock was killed by the FBI. Okay, from suicide on to happier things. One scene that I absolutely loved from the movie is when Alvarez, who was a physicist at Berkeley, 
reads in the paper that they've split the atom. And so he runs out mid haircut. And that really happened in real life. And in the movie, Oppenheimer sees him and follows him. In real life, Oppenheimer was already on campus when Alvarez comes in with half a haircut to deliver the news. And uh, it is true what happens in the movie. Oppenheimer goes, that's impossible. And he sketches out some math and says, yeah, yeah, there's, there's no way this happened. And then they immediately go and they replicate the result. But to me, that was one of the few parts of the movie that is genuinely like exciting. And it feels kind of like a heist movie. I wish more of the movie was like that. I know it had to be kind of somber because the whole thing ends, you know, results in hundreds of thousands of innocent Japanese people losing their lives. Nevertheless, the atom bomb is one of the great scientific achievements, one of the great human achievements of all time. And I know it feels weird to like celebrate it at the same time that you're recognizing the tragedy of it. I think there maybe was a way to split that difference. I actually think Nolan tried to split that difference and just didn't totally pull it off. I think, you know, the, the sense of impending doom kind of drags down the second act. Um, but I wish they imparted more of that sense of discovery and excitement of building something new and unprecedented. And that Alvarez scene to me is one of the few times that they did that. And I wish there was more of it in the movie, but I did love that scene. It's a great, great scene. One thing that I thought was stretched was Kitty was married to someone else. And then Robert whisks her off, gets her pregnant. And then he calls up her husband and says, Hey, I just got your wife pregnant. So let's all be adults about this. You guys are going to get divorced and I'm going to marry her. And the guy's like, okay. And that's how it plays out. So I think Kitty went into this marriage with Robert with very open eyes. She knew that Robert was a womanizer because he had seduced her while she was married. And he had multiple affairs while he was married to Kitty. And I think she knew about, well, I don't know if she knew about all the affairs, but she knew he was running. And it wasn't just Gene Tatlock they had an affair with. They also mentioned another affair uh, at the end with Ruth Tolman. Her husband may or may not have found out, but I'm sure it was not just them either. And again, I don't think she was naive to this in the movie. When it comes out in the trial that he had an affair with Jean while he was married to Kitty, he tells her it's nothing I hadn't already told you. And she says, yeah, but now the whole world knows. And that's true. That is how I think it played out. But still, for whatever reason, the movie, you get the impression, especially with the way that Kitty is played by Emily Blunt. For whatever reason to me, her body language, it seems, it seems like she's really put out by this knowledge that her husband was having an affair that like, it's, it's very raw for her to find out about this. And I just don't think that's true. You know, this is the middle of the 20th century. There were a bunch of communists. They were all running around. Marital ties were, let's say not as strong or sacred as they might be in some other communities. And I wouldn't surprise me if Kitty had affairs of her own. So, you know, this is stuff. Kitty had her eyes wide open. Of course, it is true. It would have been hard to have your husband's affair displayed in front of the entire world. But I thought they overplayed that part a little bit, maybe. Uh, let's stay with Kitty. She was an interesting person. She was a hard drinker. Some people referred to her as an alcoholic. Others disputed that and said she drank a lot, but she was not an alcoholic. Who knows? But she liked to socialize. She liked to drink. The issues that they show with their children were real. They gave away their first child for a couple months when he was only a couple months old. So imagine that from like two to four months old, this son is without his mother. He's, he's with another family. And so Kitty and Robert go off and, and spend time at the ranch in New Mexico. And she never bonded with her oldest child for that reason. 
and she really struggled with being a mother. The scene that they show in the movie of Oppenheimer asking another family, hey, would you be interested in adopting our son? Is true. That actually happened. It wasn't actually the Chevaliers, but whatever. They combined characters. That's fine. But you know, Robert was a more doting father, which I think comes across in the movie. He did like being with his kids. He was good with them, but he was just never around because he worked so much. You know, he, he was I mean, so important professionally, especially when they were little, he was never around. And so, you know, for those reasons, he and Kitty just really struggled to be parents and to properly bond. And their kids had issues from it. There's that scene where the baby's crying and Robert says, shouldn't you go to him? And she says, you go to him. I've been going to him all day. And that was very true to life for who she was. It's also just very true to life for many people in general. I mean, like, yeah, Kitty struggled with being a mother, but even women who don't struggle with being a mother, like that phase of life, when you got a baby who's just crying all the time, that is so hard on your nerves. I've got three kids under three. So I understand a little bit, just a little bit of what someone like that is going through. So those issues persisted. The Oppenheimer children had very difficult relationships with their parents. Sad, but that was well portrayed in the movie. Other notes, I don't think Matt Damon was a good General Groves. He just didn't have the abrasiveness. Like Matt Damon is just too nice. <laughs> like maybe not enough of an alpha to be General Groves. I, and I think they kind of wanted, I don't think it's all his fault, to be honest. I think they kind of wanted to write it so that Oppenheimer was the prime mover in the story. Whereas in reality, Groves was often the initiator and Oppenheimer was kind of getting on board with things that he was proposing, things he was moving forward. You know, Groves could cow Oppenheimer a lot of times, bend him to his will. For example, he got him to name names of fellow communists that he had associated with, which is not something Oppenheimer wanted to do. So in the movie, Oppenheimer is always getting one over on Groves, always mildly embarrassing him and pulling him along by the nose a little bit. And he seems almost meek and deferential towards Oppenheimer. In reality, he liked Oppenheimer. He worked well with him, but he was never deferential to anybody. He was incredibly hard charging, always the alpha in the room. And I just think they were missing that element in Matt Damon's performance. And in, in fairness to Matt Damon, I think that's like a really difficult performance to capture. Groves is just one of the most unique personalities I've ever read about. He's one of those really interesting characters. I feel like you don't see characters like him anymore. Everyone's got to be nice now. He was never nice. He was like, you hear the phrase bull in a China shop. I have never read about anyone who was more bull in a China shop than Groves. There's a good story. <laughs> I like at one point he's negotiating with the US Treasury Department to buy a bunch of silver, a bunch of United States silver, silver stock, uh, which you know they kept as like monetary reserve. And they needed it, I believe, for the enrichment process of, of making the bomb. So they need all the silver, lots and lots of silver. And uh, well, here's the quote. He says, uh, it says, at one point in the negotiations, writes Groves, Nichols said they would need between five and 10,000 tons of silver. This led to the icy reply, Colonel, in the treasury, we do not speak of tons of silver. Our unit is the troy ounce. At which point they go, okay, we're going to need 395 million troy ounces of silver. And he ends up actually acquiring over 13,000 tons of silver. And Groves meticulously tracks it all and at the end melts it down and returns every ounce back to the Treasury Department. He's always doing heroic feats like this, acquiring 
ungodly amounts of different resources in order to make this operation happen. The Manhattan Project was just as much a marvel of organizational complexity and industrial design as it was of hard science and engineering. And Groves was the mover behind a lot of that organizational complexity and getting things done. One other thing that I noted, and this actually wasn't in the movie, I don't know what made me think of this, but one of the things I wish I had talked about last episode, I don't know, it doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but I just found it so funny, is the brothel at Los Alamos. So there's no people around. It's a very secure environment. No professional prostitutes. But some enterprising young women, so there were unattached single men and there were unattached single women. And, you know, this is the 40s. So the women are typically not doctors, physicists, researchers. They're typically uh, typists, nurses, you know, some of the lower level occupational uh, jobs. And so some of these enterprising, unattached young women found that prostitution could be a lucrative trade. And so they started a brothel and eventually... It came to the attention of the higher-ups when some venereal diseases started popping up. And so they shut down the brothel, but then the young men start to complain. They're like, come on, guys, you got to help us out. We are literally locked into this little town. So they opened the brothel back up, but this time with testing and hygiene measures put in place. And I just think it's so funny that these 160 IQ and up geniuses have these human needs, (laughs) I guess you could say. That, uh, that, you know, they couldn't shut down a brothel even in Los Alamos. So as they say, nature finds a way is the moral of that story. Other notes. Uh, I just knew they were going to do this. I knew that they were going to make the security agents, the bad guys, right? They're trying to stop science from happening. They're unreasonably suspicious of everyone. They see ghosts around every corner and behind every door. They portray Kenneth Nichols, who in reality was a director of the project and very much involved in the logistics and really a hero of the Manhattan project, a very remarkable man in his own right, but they make him essentially the head of security and this really vindictive evil guy because he's the one always telling people we got to be more secure. You know, we got to trail people. We got to follow them. We got to wiretap them. You can't go here. You can't do this. They don't acknowledge that that attitude was right. There were four spies at Los Alamos. They talk about Klaus Fuchs in passing, who was the most damaging spy, but he was not the only one. There were three others. And so it's just funny to me that they make Nichols out to be this great villain for being so suspicious of everyone when it's like, yeah, arguably he should have been more suspicious because there were spies who were smuggling out secrets to the Soviets and he didn't catch them. And as a consequence, they were able to build an atom bomb only two years later you know, there's an alternate world where these secrets don't leak. The Soviets don't get a nuclear bomb within two years. And the Cold War never happens because, you know, Americans can just kind of roll the Soviets out of Eastern Europe with these threats that we're going to drop nukes on you. And, you know, how much human suffering would that have relieved to not have had the Cold War, to have not have had the Soviet Union in charge of half of Europe for the better half of a century? So I think it's ridiculous they portrayed Nichols this way. They portrayed the security officers this way, but I'm not surprised. Okay. I guess I better go back to saying something positive about the movie. One other scene that I love is when they're talking about the nuclear test and Oppenheimer says, we're going to be so-and-so this many yards away from the test. And one of the scientists says, are those distances safe? And he says, well, they're based on your calculations. 
And so I love that because it just shows the level to which this was like a homemade bomb. There was no safety net. There were no official protocols. There was no guidebook, no best practices. No one had done this before. This was basically like 50 of the smartest people in the world and thousands of their associates to help them out got together and did a science fair project. The nuclear bomb was a science fair project and it must have been exhilarating, but also terrifying. Like imagine putting together a nuclear bomb as a science fair project. You know, who knows if it's going to go off, if it does how big it's going to be. You know, you see all this uncertainty and doubt in the movie. I think they did that really well. I mostly loved the actual scene where they show the test of the bomb. I love that they did the sound delay. When I read that, it's funny. I guess I had the same thought as Christopher Nolan. But when I read about that, when I read about the test and I read that, wow, there was a minute and a half when they could just see the bomb going off and they could see the mushroom cloud, but it took, you know, 80 seconds to actually hear the blast. I thought, whoa, that's cool. And that was so well done. You know, they're awed by this view of the bomb and you don't even think about the fact that you're not hearing anything until a minute later. You know, there's this, this big noise and this big sonic boom that shatters windows. And um, I thought that was very cool. My only issue was the actual explosion didn't look that big to me. I think they must have used real effects. I know Christopher Nolan doesn't like to use digital effects. He prefers to use real practical physical effects. And my feeling was frankly, like you should have just done a CGI nuke because it did not look like a nuclear explosion to me. You could tell they were just trying to cut around the fact that it was a relatively small explosion. Maybe I'm a snob about this. I don't know. I haven't heard anyone else express this, but I just thought it looked small. One other thing that was accurate that they embellished a little was Oppenheimer did go to meet with President Truman and he did say, we feel like we have blood on our hands. And Truman really did not like that. He was upset about it. The part that's not accurate, of course, is that Oppenheimer didn't hear him complaining about it as he walked out the door. Uh, that's okay. But uh, this is uh, what he really did say. He said, uh, Truman said of Oppenheimer, blood on his hands. Damn it. He hasn't half as much blood on his hands as I have. You just don't go around belly aching about it. And then he later told his secretary of state, Dean Acheson, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. And he constantly referred to him as the crybaby scientist. And so I liked that they included that. I think I find that also very funny that, uh, that Truman called him a crybaby scientist. Uh, the one thing I didn't like about that scene is I'm not sure why they felt the need to make Truman out to be some sort of idiot. I think that's unfair. Yeah, I don't agree with everything Truman did. I don't agree with his decision to drop the nuclear bomb in Japan, but he wasn't an idiot by any stretch of the imagination. Speaking of Truman, uh, that brings me to one last discrepancy between the movie and the historical record. Oppenheimer definitely had qualms about dropping the bomb on Japan. He had reservations. He had second thoughts. Um, he wasn't sure that was a good decision, even though he had you know, no real decision-making power over it. This is true. Before they even dropped the bomb, he was pacing back and forth. People heard him pacing, saying, those poor, poor people. And it's true that he said to Truman, you know, I, I feel like we have blood on our hands. But at the same time, he never disavowed his involvement with the project. In fact, there was this play in the early 60s called On the Matter of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And that play portrayed him much as the movie Oppenheimer does, as feeling abject horror at what he has done in creating this thing that kills so many people. And in fact, Oppenheimer wrote a letter 
an open letter to the creators of the play. And he says, quoting them, he says, you say that I think we have done the work of the devil. And then he says, this is the very opposite of what I think. I had never said that I regretted participating in a responsible way in the making of the bomb. And so he went out of his way to make sure people knew publicly that he did not disavow his involvement in the project. He did not feel that sort of abject horror and remorse. And in the movie, when he gives his speech right after the dropping of the bomb on Japan, they make him hallucinate visions of burning corpses and he's hearing screams and he's having headaches and he's just so tortured. And in reality, there's no evidence that he felt any of that stuff. You know, they portray what really happened, which is there's this little gym where they have kind of a pep rally and he gives a speech and they kind of show this, but they don't give you the context, which is normally when he would give speeches in that little gymnasium, he would just walk onto the stage from the side of the stage. But uh, in that moment, he decides to run through the crowd to kind of psych them up, right? To get people going. So everyone's sitting, waiting for him to speak. And he runs down the aisle to pump people up. And they do show him walking down the aisle, but they don't show this was a deliberate move to like jazz people up. And, you know, they show him having these hallucinations to mask the actual words that he said. Because the actual words that he said were, the world will remember this day. It's too soon to determine what the results of the bombing are, but I'll bet the Japanese didn't like it. I'm so proud of what you have accomplished. I just wish we had done it in time to use against the Germans. Okay, so that is an excerpt of what he said. And that's what they have him say in the movie. And so they have to try and twist it to to make him seem tortured. Um, He wasn't. He was amenable to alternative proposals rather than dropping it on the Japanese. And he was very sober about the consequences of what he had done. Um, I wouldn't say that he was flippant at all or that he was like gleeful about his involvement or the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But it's just not accurate to say that he was this tortured soul as they kind of portray, my opinion. Okay, um, that kind of does it with my movie review. Again, I liked it. The soundtrack, amazing. I've been listening to it for a few days now and uh, it's great. Just a couple of things I want to talk about in closing few more end notes. One was, oh, one, one is just my opinion on the dropping of the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I don't think it was necessary to end the war. The Japanese were already trying to engage us. They wanted to get out of the war. They wanted a negotiated peace. I think that's the reason that we didn't accept their overtures. And a big part of that negotiated peace was they wanted the emperor to stay on the throne. And we said, no, 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 that's unacceptable. You know, we need an unconditional surrender. So we bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki and kill hundreds of thousands of civilians. The irony is MacArthur gets in there and sets up the new government. Is like, yeah, 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 it's fine. You guys can have the emperor. doesn't seem like a problem. So like we went through this whole thing, killed all these people for nothing. Like the emperor still ended up on the throne of Japan. I mean, maybe it would have been a slightly more right-wing government that kept power because I assume under a negotiated settlement, the, the current government at the time of the settlement would have had some influence in the creation of the new government instead of completely being removed from power and the Americans just essentially wholesale creating a new government. But man, you know, like a slightly more left-wing government, I don't know if that is worth that death toll. Usually people say, 
Well, in order to end the war, we would have had to invade the Japanese mainland. And I just, I don't think that's true unless you're saying we needed a complete and total unconditional surrender. I'm not sure why there needed to be that though. Maybe other people feel differently, but that that's why I disagree with the dropping of bomb. Okay. Other stuff. Was Oppenheimer a spy? My answer, my thought, probably not. Maybe. Here's the evidence. Here's why I think he wasn't a spy. So I guess I'll, I'll do the same thing that I did with Gene Tatlock. First, here's the evidence why you would think he's a spy. Um, and there are some scholars, there are good scholars who think Oppenheimer was a Soviet spy. So number one, the head of the Soviet spy effort in the San Francisco Bay Area said that he was. So that is a pretty strong piece of evidence. You know, so when the Soviet Union fell, we got all this documentation evidence. We actually had a lot previous to that too, from wiretaps and counterintelligence. So we had documents showing that this guy had written back. I think this wasn't declassified until the nineties. This guy had written back to Moscow and he was writing a list of his accomplishments. And he said, you know, I recruited and turned J Robert Oppenheimer to be a spy for us. And that's a pretty big feather in my cap. So, um, that's one piece of evidence. Uh, it seems pretty strong at first. Another is a document from a high ranking, uh, Soviet spy in Moscow. I think he's like the common, he was like one of the top spies, like one of the heads of the agency. And he lists Oppenheimer as a Soviet agent in America. So both of those are pretty compelling pieces of evidence. And then the other thing is just that there were so many spies at Los Alamos who were never caught. And so it's like, whoa, okay. Um, how was he unaware of this? You know, did he turn a blind eye? So here's why I don't find that compelling. Um, number one, the guy who said that he had recruited Oppenheimer, he was being recalled to the Soviet Union. There were some accusations against him. And so long story short, he might've been padding his resume a little bit, right? So maybe Oppenheimer does join, you know, the secret communist group that we talked about earlier. And so, you know, the head spy in the Bay Area is like, oh yeah, Oppenheimer, he's one of ours. He's a spy and he's just exaggerating. And then because he exaggerated, you know, back in Moscow, they think, oh, Oppenheimer is, is a spy. But all this could be based on an exaggeration. I, I think probably was based on an exaggeration. And then of course, in regards to, um, you know, these spies at Los Alamos, they fooled everyone else too. You know, do, do we think all of these people were spies? They were all turning a blind eye. You know, even Groves uh, didn't catch these people. Uh, Oppenheimer was just not in a position to be monitoring or observing these people. Uh, it's just, you can't expect him to have known who and who wasn't a spy, especially when, you know, Klaus Fuchs is the only one of these people who was really high up. The rest were not that high up and were just kind of swiping stuff and sending it to the Soviets. So I don't think that's very compelling. And then to me, the strongest piece of counter evidence against him being a spy is there's this conversation that the FBI recorded where essentially you have one of his friends who is a go-between, who, who is essentially a Soviet spy. And he's talking with someone at the physics department, um, a physicist at Berkeley. I think it's Joe Weinberg um, and Nelson is his friend. But anyway, th these two people are talking and an FBI wiretap picked them up talking and one of them saying essentially to the other, Hey, what's up with Oppenheimer? Can we get him to give us some Intel on this secret project? And Nelson's going, no, you know, 
He's not as solid as he used to be. I think his wife is having a bad influence on him and he's getting involved with all this military stuff. Like, I think he's gone squishy on communism and I don't think he's really a committed communist anymore. And I think he's afraid of, of getting caught in the professional risks. I, you know, I don't think he would do that kind of thing. And I mean, you could see a scenario where this is disinformation, right? Where they're just finding a microphone and going, Hey, that Oppenheimer guy, totally not a spy. Doesn't it suck that he's not a spy. Um, except that in this conversation, <laughs> end up exchanging some compromising information and Joe Weinberg it ends up ruining his physics career. They come down hard on him. So, you know, this is probably not something they thought was being recorded. So the people who would know were secretly recorded saying that Oppenheimer was not a spy. So to me, that seems like pretty strong evidence. And then also, I just don't think it fits with his personality. He wanted to be important. This would have flattered his ego like nothing else to be the center of the Manhattan Project. I don't think he would have risked that. Like, I think that would have been more important to him than anything. And then another thing is the Soviets were already getting the secrets from other spies. So almost like why risk it? You know, you've got someone who you know is at least sympathetic to you in this high position. You know, why, why ruin that by having him actually, you know, do grunt spy work and steal plans and send them over and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I don't think it happened. Uh, one other thing, one last question. I probably shouldn't answer this, but I had a friend ask me. He says, uh, he's a single guy. And he goes, you know, I noticed in the episode that you said that he was so hopeless with women that it was driving him insane. And then all of a sudden in Berkeley, he's like a notorious womanizer who is with different women all the time. And so he goes, you know, Ben, I'm interested in uh, the development of this process. Could you help me understand what changed to make him go from being completely helpless with women to being an unstoppable force. And so I'll answer his question. I think it's a pretty easy answer. Oppenheimer is intelligent. And I think that's obviously very attractive, right? He was funny. He knew a lot. Intelligence is attractive. And then the other thing is early on, he didn't have confidence and he was a nobody. And then he was a somebody like someone really important. And I think that everyone is attracted to fame, importance, and competence. And I think especially women, I know I'm getting into like dangerous territory, but I think especially women are attracted to competence and are attracted to notoriety. Uh, people who've been successful, they're attracted to success, frankly. Um, I'm not trying to say they're all gold diggers, but just like they like to see that a person is very accomplished at something. In fact, it doesn't always have to be lucrative. You just have to be really good at something. And so if there's like dating advice that I could give off of this it is, you know, Oppenheimer, the way he met women was by being in that domain where he was really successful. The people that he dated and was meeting were mostly students at Berkeley or they were family members of faculty at Berkeley, or they were people that he met through his associations uh, with progressive causes where he was also kind of a star. And so I just think go where you are competent. That's where you're going to have the most success. This is especially true for men, but I think it's true for men and women. Like if you are a gym rat 
and you're super strong and you have a great physique, then I know picking people up at the gym is kind of looked down on, but like find a way to meet and date people in that context. Cause you're going to find people who value that, who understand what it means to, to be strong and to be in shape. And you're going to be able to demonstrate that you have done that and do that. If you're really smart, then try and meet, you know, other geeks, like meet people in that context where they can see how smart you are. And like, you can show off that level of accomplishment and competence. So that's, that's my only piece of dating advice is like, go where you can shine and try and meet people in that context. So I think that will definitely be the only dating advice that I give on this podcast. I was sweating that whole time. Am I going to get canceled? I don't think I'm going to get canceled for that. I think I, I think I danced through it, but I don't know. It was close. It was close. Uh, okay. That's almost the end. I do like to end every episode if I can on a more profound note. So I will just end with this. I'll end with asking the question, what is the meaning of Oppenheimer? What is the meaning of his life in like a cosmic sense? And to me, the meaning of it all is that human ingenuity is an awesome force. And atomic energy is like the ultimate expression of our mastery as a species of the universe around us. And yes, that power is terrifying and destructive. But to me, it's also beautiful and inspiring. I actually think that's something the movie does really well. It captures that awe and terror that kind of go together side by side of what humans can accomplish. That's why ultimately I actually love the movie is because it really does convey that very well. And so I think the meaning of Oppenheimer, the main thing I take away is be an Oppenheimer, accomplish the impossible, even if it means shredding the very fabric of reality as he did. And even if it means casualties, like creating something new always means disrupting what is out there. Hopefully not to the tune of hundreds of thousands of deaths every time, but in some way it's always going to upset the apple cart a little bit. So dare to be an Oppenheimer, dare to be a Prometheus. Okay. That does it until next time. Thanks for listening to how to take over the world. <laughs>